Father in heaven, we just want to thank you for the privilege we have to open your word and understand how your principles can be practically applied in our lives, in our homes, in our church, and in our community that we have the privilege to serve. We invite your spirit's presence here now that your spirit will teach us whatever it is we need to know and how we may implement it in our own situation. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe we should amend that and say that the principles come from the Word of God, but these are principles that were, have been applied by us uh, in our during our, our lives in New Mexico. Very good. So the first question that we want to know is, why do we want to talk about this today? We believe that we should be talking about this because manhood is in trouble. And there's no better place to look at this than in the home. Statistics in North America show that one-third of children do not live with their biological father. In a manless home, a child is four times more likely to live in poverty, more likely to suffer emotional and behavioral problems, two times greater infant mortality in that home, more likely to go to prison. A child is more likely to go to prison, more likely to commit crime, seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teen, and more likely to face abuse and neglect. And of those fathers that are in the home, how many are engaged? I mean, they may be in the home, but are they there in the home engaged? Well, you see, I was engaged in many activities outside of our home. Instead of working intentionally with my wife years ago to raise godly sons and daughters, my attitude changed when I realized that I would not hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, when I was asked that message in Jeremiah 13, 20, where is the flock that was given thee, thy beautiful flock? That really was a call to my heart. And as a result of that, I began to pay much more attention. I'm not trying to say that the activities that I was doing were ungodly. They were not. Busy as a family physician, doing a lot of teaching, involved in church planting, involved in evangelism, health evangelism, involved on television, Lifestyle Magazine, and Janice's Attic. I enjoyed it all. But what about my flock? And that was the question that was before us. So, in order to answer the question, we need to be clear what godly manhood looks like and the place to go, we believe, is the Word of God. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we read, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, you know, many of us are familiar with Proverbs 31 which is well known to detail many attributes of an excellent wife. However, I, I believe that you don't get to be an excellent wife unless you have first become or are becoming an excellent daughter. Well, the same principle, I think, applies for becoming a godly man. First of all, a godly man has to be committed to following after Christ. Else, how could he be godly? And we believe that for this, this is the greatest need in the world today. The greatest want, you've heard this passage in book education, page 57, the greatest want of the world is the want of men, men who will not be bought or sold, men who in their inmost souls are true and honest, men who do not fear to call sin by its right name, men whose conscience is as true 
to duty as the needle to the pole, men who will stand for the right, though the heavens fall. So how do we, if we are interested in raising godly sons, do this? Well, first of all, we know that Satan will attack. You know, as long as we seek to mentor godly men, regardless of their age, we need to be aware of the attacks of the enemy. But I say that we should not focus on Satan's attacks, but rather on the power that is available to each and every one of us in our situations through divine grace and through God's nature to combine with our feeble efforts to develop our sons into the men that God would have them to be. There is no limit to spiritual attainments in and through being partakers of the divine nature. This is the greatest, the highest inducement ever offered to man. His identity is hid with Christ in God, and he has that mind that was in Christ Jesus, and he has that high, pure, and elevated thoughts, and for he has grown into the likeness of Christ. That is godliness. So today, we will seek to paint a portrait of a godly man, and we are going to cover seven points as we look at some of the critical, what we believe are the more critical attributes, these are by no means all of them, of his character, and discuss some of the disciplines that help to build such a character in childhood and later on in adulthood if a young man was not initially raised in an environment that would help to give him that right foundation. So the portrait of a godly man, these are the seven points that we want to cover. The biblical identity, what is it? The humility, uh, integrity, honor, diligence and perseverance, self-sacrifice and self-discipline, and moral purity. I just want to put in a good word for mentoring, <clears throat> because as Edwin mentioned, some uh, the blessing and the privilege of, of having a foundation in a godly home um, and having been able to watch a godly father, to live with him, to receive his mentoring. Uh, a godly father is the best mentor for a godly boy uh, to help him become a man of God. But many in this room, in my home, my brother, I, we did not have a godly father to look up to. So it was much later in life um, that we came to, uh, to the convictions that we now have. So I just want to make an appeal to, to you, especially to the men, since this, um, the purpose of this seminar today is particularly uh, mentoring godly men. <clears throat> if you are those men that did have that blessing and privilege, pass it on. Pass it on. Seek to mentor. God has given man an identity which involves many things, including being a leader, being his representative um, to meet the needs of, of a broken world. Um, so take the time. It's very difficult in this day and age to invest time in extra things. But take the time as you can, if, if nothing else, in praying for young men in your life that you know need mentorship. For those of you who are adults, you've come to know the Lord in your uh, adulthood. Um, again, the, the 
benefits of having a mentor, a godly older man that you respect and trust is incredibly positive. It's a huge blessing. So take the time to seek that out. Pray about it. Um, and there is also a very rich source of mentor. Our boys, all of our children, have benefited incredibly by reading the biographies of men and women of God of all ages um, that have been mentored by God themselves. We are going to have on our website, we meant to do it before we came here, didn't have time to do it, a, a list, a list of biographies, a, li a list of um, a recommended list of materials that you can read if you're a young man and you didn't have the foundation, or even if you did have the foundation. Um, our young people do this all the time. They look at the lives of others, worthy lives. They, they are inspired by the testimony of those people. So mentoring is very important. So if you are now young, you have boys, girls in your home, uh, this is the time to take very seriously your role, your example is far greater and more impactful than the words you can speak. So make sure that through the life that you are living, you are mentoring your sons just as much as with the admonitions that you give them. And if you did not have, if you don't feel that you are skilled at doing that mentoring, ask the Lord to help you. And uh, as in my case, I asked my wife to help me. That's what I did, because I didn't know how to do it. I, I didn't know. And many things I knew what to do, but there were some things I didn't. And the Lord blessed me by giving a godly woman who could help me. So the first thing that we want to do is to help our young men to understand that they draw their identity as a member of the body of God's peculiar people. We've got to remember this world is not our home. We're just traveling through. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who have called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we draw our identity from God. We need to help our young men to understand that they need to strive all that God purposed in creating them, as it's revealed in Scripture, rather than what worldly philosophies are shaping men to be in our current age. First Thessalonians 2.11 For you know, like a father with his children, that we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So through the, the study of passages such as Ephesians 5, 1 Timothy 3 and 4, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and chapter 4, and Titus chapter 2, we discover that God calls man to be a servant leader who becomes, first of all, the head of his own home, seeks to rule well as Christ would have us to lead in self-sacrificing spirit. The second thing that we have to understand is that the godly man, we need to help our young men, ourselves, to understand that we need to exemplify this servant leadership and to love sacrificially. Now, we want to take a look at an example and I think I left my book in that bag. Or did I bring? No, I didn't. I left the book in the bag. I can walk. Oh, thank you, dear. Uh, of a, from history, 
of a very worthy, we call it a mentioned worthy man. Since the nature of his leadership, as testified by those who worked closely with him and were under his leadership, have many similarities to the self-sacrificing servant leadership of Christ. So I just want to read for you, this is one of those books called Boyhood and Beyond by Bob Schultz. In 1916, Ernest Shackleton and his men approached the coast of Antarctica. They were attempting to be the first party to hike across the continent. It was particularly cold, a very cold year, with much more ocean ice than usual. With only one day's sail to their destination, the ocean froze around their ship, called Endurance. For nearly a year, the ice held them captive before it crushed and sank the boat. Well, the crew camped out on the ice until it broke to pieces in the warming weather. So climbing into three small lifeboats, the 28 men took to the open sea. Their desperate struggle was only, al only allowed them to reach a barren island called Elephant Island. Unless somebody went for help, every one of them would die. Well, the nearest source of help, according to this, was 800 miles away on South George Island. Well, Shackleton and five of his men attempted the challenge. He was not about to put anybody else through something that he himself was not willing to do. And in a 22-foot makeshift sailboat, they sailed some of the most treacherous waters in the world. They buried they battled hurricane winds and 140-foot waves, freezing rain, built up 18 inches of ice on their small craft without modern navigation equipment, and with only a few good readings of their sextant, they miraculously reached the shore of South George Island. So, without, e even from sea level, this says here, the small party had to climb a range of uncharted snow-capped peaks to the whaling station on the other side. Exhaustion and hunger tracked them like wolves, forcing them to gamble for their lives. On the slope of sheer ice, they had to make a choice, either die from exposure or lock themselves into a human toboggan and slide down a steep slope into the fog without knowing what was going to be at the bottom. Though Shackleton and his small band were saved from death by reaching the whaling station, he would not rest until all his men were safe. It took months and four different ships but he safely rescued every man. To tell you, these kinds of stories are the kind of stories where you, you don't tell your own story, but you hear what other people have to say about it. Well, Frank Worsley, who was the captain of Endurance, wrote about Shackleton's boat journey that it was certain that a man of such heroic mind and self-sacrificing nature as Shackleton would undertake this most dangerous and difficult task himself. He was, in fact, unable by nature to do otherwise. He had to lead in the position of the most danger, difficulty, and responsibility. I have seen him turn pale, yet force himself into the post of greatest peril. That was his type of courage. He would do the job that he was most afraid of. By self-sacrificing, this, this is the captain saying, and throwing his own life into the balance, he saved every one of his men. Not a life was lost, although at times it looked unlikely that one would be saved. His outstanding characteristics, his care for, and his anxiety for the lives and well-being of his men is what the captain wrote. You know, we need more men like Shackleton, men who are able to look past themselves to the need of others, to the needs of their family, their community, their church, and the world. This godly man is to love God's word. 
Psalms 119.97, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What's the practical application of this? The practical application is that we are to allow the word of God to shape and transform our life. This was not always the case in my life. Years ago, I remember very distinctly a situation that I was in. I was involved in a large health education series uh, in our community, and I would speak about complex issues, make them understandable, and I enjoyed what I did. And I received a lot of praise for what I did. One day, while sitting down to my devotions, because I had taken the time by this time to go before the Lord every day to learn more about myself, I got this prompting. I did not hear an audible voice. I just got this prompting. You need to read the story of Balaam. And I said, I remember sitting there going, Balaam? I know the story of Balaam. I don't have a problem with money. Okay. All right, fine. So I opened up page prophets. You're familiar with this book, I trust. And I read the story of Balaam. And I read it. And it didn't take very long, you know, 15 minutes or so. And I got through the story and I went, Nice story. Not my issue. Read it again. Okay. I, I did not hear any audible voice. Just got the prompting. Read it again. So I read it again. Halfway through Balaam, it hit me. I did not crave money, but I craved the affirmation of man. Men's praise. Yeah. When it when that thought hit me, I was devastated. I couldn't believe it. What? I am just like Balaam. I only say this to you, that there is nothing wrong in giving health education. There's nothing wrong in doing good work. But my motive for doing the work was not the glory of God. Do you understand? This is what the Word is supposed to do for us, is to teach us, to help strip away the world and see it, our blindness. Thank you, dear. And to see ourselves as God sees ourselves and to see our need of Him to do it His way. God redirected my life. I, I must confess to you, I was so stunned that I said, in that case, I'm not going to be doing any more public speaking. I said, I can't do it because I'm not safe. And so I stopped. Oh, that did not go over well with many who wanted me to be doing what I was doing. And I said, I can't, I can't, I can't do this. And I says, Lord, I will get up again when I am safe to get up again. When you say I am safe to get up again. And it was a year and a half before I did anything publicly. And when praise would come, I would very quickly say, not me. Look there because it's not about me. It's all about him. So I just want you to be clear. I am not saying that you should step away from doing good work. Do you, are, am I being clear? I'm being clear with you that God is the one who needs to direct us and that it is our desire that we shape our lives according to his will. Yeah, it is the word of God. This is an example as his children, our children, saw the change in their father's life. And they saw that it was a change that he made, a drastic change that uh, displeased many because of his time in communion with the Father in heaven. He allowed God's word to determine what he would do and what he would not do for the months to come. 
And so this is what it is for the godly man. And it needs to, if we are parents with boys in our home, girls in our home, with, with helping them to become, to, to have the priorities of a godly person. We need to help our young men to understand that we are to seek wisdom. Job 12, 12, with the ancient is wisdom, and in the length of days understanding. With him is wisdom and strength. He hath counsel and understanding. This also, I think, can apply to godly men in our lives who are more experienced than we are. That can also help to give reflection and understanding. And the godly man should be able to teach. 2 Timothy 2. Therefore, now there, thou therefore, my son, be strong in thy grace, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and in the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And I think that a godly man should learn not to be angry. Wherefore, put and truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. We don't have time to go into one of the stories that some of you may be aware of, of a young man in Colorado, church, and uh, killed a number of individuals at the church. He was a part of that ministry. And what prompted, the motive that prompted him to do what he did was anger. A godly man should learn how to live his life so that it results in a good reputation. The formation of a right character we all know is the work of a lifetime, and it is the outgrowth of prayerful meditation united with a grand purpose. The excellence of character that you possess must be the result of your own effort. Friends may encourage you, but they can't do the work for you. Wishing, sighing, dreaming will never make you great or good. You must climb my life today to 67. The next attribute that we want to talk about is the attribute of humility. Christ humbled himself and lived a life of absolute surrender to God. The godly man is likewise a humble man, a man that is utterly surrendered to God's will. The definition of humble, having or showing a modest estimate of one's own importance. Unless we see ourselves as we really are without him, we can't begin to see him and appreciate really is, let alone being able to take hold of his grace and power. We need to go get acquainted with God. Though the Lord be high, yet he has respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off. Humility is necessary, friends. Romans 12.3 says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself, more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. That word abomination, pride is an abomination to the Lord. That word abomination is a strong word used in the scriptures to declare in a very bold and clear way how God feels about pride and a haughty spirit. It is disgusting to him. Proverbs 16, 5, everyone that is of a proud heart is an abomination to the Lord. How strong. Proverbs 26, 12, seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? There is more hope of a fool than of him. 
And here's yet one more warning, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride cometh before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Humility is important to God, friends. It is the foundation of greatness. Matthew 18, 4 says, Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's a very different program than the one by which men function in this world. Rich rewards are promised to the humble. Proverbs 22, 4, By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. And again, another promise, James 4.10, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. When our daughter was about 23, this is our oldest daughter, we asked all four of our children to write for us a list of their hopes and dreams involving a future life partner, a list of attributes that they desired in a life partner and that they considered to be essential um, for their happiness in order for them to feel like they ended up with a good match. Our oldest daughter, firstborn fashion, wrote a very impressive detailed list that we began lightheartedly calling Shantae's 28 Fundamentals. Since the list actually contained 28 points, each with a description of some character, attribute, or value. We did this for the purpose of really knowing what was in our, our children's hearts at that point. You know, not to just um, figure this out from our observations. We felt that we knew our children well. We've had a, a, a beautiful relationship with them by God's grace uh, since we began making many changes um, in, our, in our homes and in our life. But at that point, we really wanted to know from their perspective. So anyway, they all wrote the list. And number four on her list got my attention because it was the only one of the 28 fundamentals. She didn't call them fundamentals, by the way. <laughs> but she did call them essentials, which is pretty close. Um, so number four, um, she wrote the end of that number four in the form of a prayer. And number four was humble. I want him to be humble, willing to admit and say, I'm sorry. And then she wrote this little prayer, whatever else he is, oh Lord, let him be humble. Spring 2008. A man who is willing to admit he is wrong, she elaborated. A man who recognizes that pride and self are his greatest enemies and is committed to contending with them and making him himself accountable to me, even when it is difficult. And then she ended with, that man I can trust with my heart. Humility, friends, is necessary for a man to become the man, the husband, and the father that God intends for him to be. As I ponder from my own personal experience and that of many that we have counseled, the difference that that one character trait makes in the success of a marriage union, the success of many things, I realize how wise this young lady was at the age of 23 to single out that one character trait as one that was essential for her happiness. Pride breeds conflict. Proverbs uh, 13.10. Conflict 
can arise, first of all, very easily in the relationships of a person who is proud and selfish. When we allow our natural pride and selfishness to flourish, we shut out God. And we hinder his life-changing power, the power of grace, the power of the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. We are always serving one of two masters at all times. And when Jesus is not reigning supreme in our hearts, the enemy is. And all our natural pride and selfishness rule. So Proverbs 13.10 sta- states, Only by pride cometh contention. The godly man needs to cultivate humility. It's extremely important. It should be at the top of the list. We made it number two here. When we are lovers of our own opinions, when we are intent on having our own way, which proud people usually are, or satisfying some selfish longing, and make no mistake, we know this from what is in our own hearts naturally, when we are intent on having our own way and someone stands in the way, conflict arises. We are naturally and immediately ready for combat. In our sinful, selfish human nature, selfishness and pride are very, very natural and ever-present. When that is the case, we are apt to become agitated at the slightest provocation. The most insignificant remark or incident can precipitate conflict when self is alive. Self-centered people think only or primarily of themselves. The enemy loves to instigate conflict by encouraging our natural self-centered spirit. Humility is essential if we are to live in harmony with others. Philippians 2.4 says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And Romans 12.10 says, Be kindly affectioned one to another in brotherly love, in honor, preferring one another. When we are humble, friends, and we are focused on God's glory, we resist the enemy. What are we promised will happen when we resist the enemy? He will flee from us. When we are consciously submitted to the Lordship of Christ, we are at rest. And as long as we remain surrendered to Christ, nothing can disturb our peace. That is what, that is the experience that our boys need to see in their parents. We are free to be God's channel of blessing to others, regardless of the actions or the mindset of others around us. There is sweet freedom in surrender, friends. We don't have to be in bondage to the enemy or to our natural selfishness. There is no joy in selfishness. Have you, have you noticed that as I have? Even when we get our way, when I have selfishly insisted on my own way and I get my way, I have no joy. Do you know why that is? Because joy is the fruit of the Spirit. When we are in self, the Spirit is not in control. When we surrender to His will, our hearts can beat in unison with the heart of God, which loves and gives and serves, rejoicing continually. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The spiritually minded man is humble. 
He has a teachable spirit. He is other-centered and is able to be mentored by God and is able to be mentored by others to become the man, the husband, and the father that God calls him to be. How does a boy cultivate humility? Take it home now. This is the practical application. How does a parent help mentor a boy or a young man or a girl to become humble? How does a grown man cultivate this character trait that is so foundational to greatness? Steps to Christ, page 43. Um, well, let me read the first. Recognize that the battle against self is the greatest battle that was ever fought. So we need to, we need to engage in that battle. Some people don't even know that their flesh is warring against the spirit. They're not aware. The yielding of self, surrendering all to the will of God requires a struggle, but the soul must submit to God before it can be renewed in holiness. This is a day-by-day battle for the godly man, and he must be steadfast and in resisting. Our children will not learn this unless, in our home anyway, the grace of God is amazing. He can find rocks to tell our children in his own time what to do. But for those of us who are parents, what our children observe, and, and we will say this again and again, and please pardon us, but it, it's, it's one of the hardest lessons we've had to learn. The major setbacks in our children's lives have been because of our own sins. So we need to model for them what it means to surrender, which means that Humility, cultivating humility needs to be a day by day uh, at home. And we need to make ourselves accountable to each other. Uh, we have learned in our home, even with our children, of course, we have one of the first things that we did with them as God began to put many burdens in our hearts was the, <clears throat> the burden of winning their hearts. Because Ellen White says, you must win their heart. You must win their affection if you are to impress religious truth upon their hearts. So one of the first things that we did when we changed our lifestyle is we gave ourselves to our children in much time. We set aside a family time in the evening. And one of the greatest benefits that we gain from that is that once you have a relationship where love is not in question, there is mutual love you're crazy about each other, it gives you more influence. It gives you the ability to be able to, to um, speak clearly when you see pride at work in your child and you point out those things. Um, it will alienate if you don't have a foundation of a love relationship. So taking it home... We need to be able to be discerning, first of all, and we will not do that unless we are in the Word of God ourse ourselves and learn to discern our own selfishness and then helping our children to do the same. Take personal responsibility for your own pride and selfishness. Admit every selfish or prideful inclination and response. Admit it to yourself and confess those sins. I learned to confess those sins to my husband when I was selfish 
or prideful and responded in a disrespectful way to him. If I ever did that in front of the children, I learned how important it was that I humble myself also in front of the children to model to them. If you are a parent, you model humility for your sons. Anytime you respond selfishly, you're provoked to respond sinfully, acknowledge your failure, humbly ask for their forgiveness. Some parents think that they actually lose respect in this way, but in fact, humbling yourself to admit your failure and to seek their forgiveness is the most effective way to win their respect and motivate them to choose Christianity because they will see this works. Your humble response will be the greatest evidence to them of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you are a parent, once again, ask your sons. I, I used to have a terrible problem in the early years of, of um, our children's lives with my temper, with losing my temper and yelling at them. As God took me through a journey of learning to exercise self-control and to speak in a, and correct them in an encouraging way instead of a tearing down, demoralizing way. I learned not only to just flee to God in prayer as I was under temptation, but I learned to come to them to humble myself and to say, Honey, pray for me. Mommy is not representing Jesus rightly, and I want to. And God has the power. Please pray for me. That is another practical application in helping your children. We're usually the last ones to recognize our own pride and selfishness. The Bible points out in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and what? Desperately wicked. Who can know it? That daily hour that Ellen White recommends in contemplation of the life of Christ is essential. Only under the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit will we be able to see Christ in all his holiness and beauty. Then we will see ourselves and where we lack, as we will see how we really are, and we will be humbled to recognize our need. Intentionally practice humility in your daily life. First and foremost, with those that are around you, with your spouse, with your children, especially in all your closest relationships, because that's where we usually tend to give ourselves permission to be ourselves and to become impatient. Embrace accountability. When I first started um, really seeking victory over my sin of angry words, my children began to hold me accountable. When they saw that I, that I was different after coming, going to the bedroom, fleeing to the bedroom and getting on my knees, and I would come back and mom was different. So they started without my asking them. Different in a positive way. Yeah. Yes, they started holding me accountable by, when they would see that I was on temptation, my oldest, which I didn't realize she was here, my oldest would say, uh, when she would start hearing me changing my tone, uh, Mom, do you want to go pray first? You see, she became an accountability partner to me as the oldest of the children. You can do that with your spouse. Humble yourself and be accountable. Say, honey, when you hear me letting go of Christ, just put your head, your hand on my shoulder and say, honey, should we pray? Whatever you want to, to have your spouse say to you, but choose to be accountable. 
The next point that we want to raise is that three says the integrity of the upright shall guide them, but the perverseness of transgressors shall destroy them. You know, according to a 2002 study conducted by the University of Massachusetts, 60% of adults cannot have a 10-minute conversation without lying at least once. These people in the study who actually did lie took and told an average of three lies during their brief chat. Our parents, according to the study, get the worst of it, with 86% of us lying to our parents regularly. Doesn't matter what our age is, by the way. Followed by lying to friends, siblings, and spouses. In general, we lie about things that aren't important, little lies that we think that we think will make us look better or more likable. As an example, like saying, yeah, did you read that book? Oh, yeah, I read it. You didn't. Deception has eternal consequences. You might have remembered this passage in Faith I Live By, page 319. It is Satan, who is the conductor in the form of an angel of light, taking the world captive, and they're all going with lightning speed to perdition. This delusion will spread, and we shall have to contend with it face to face. And unless we are prepared for it, we ourselves, if we don't recognize lies, will become ensnared and overcome. What's the purpose of integrity? Oh, that this might be the purpose of our lives, that we should have regard even to the expression on our face, to our words, and even the tone of our voice when we speak. All our business transactions would be wrought in faith and integrity. Then, then would the world be convinced that there is a people who are loyal to the God in heaven. Wow. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12. And ye that study to be quiet and do your own business and work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk honestly toward them that are without. That is the fellowship and that ye may have lack of nothing. The godly man is a man of integrity. And again, this is another area where it is so important. If you are teaching your children that it's important to tell the truth, and you punish them when you see that they lie, but they hear you get on the phone, mm -hmm. and, you know, when you just finished yelling at your children, suddenly you pick up the phone and, Oh, hi, Alice. Oh, I'm, I'm having a great day. Thanks. When they see a lack of integrity in you, no matter what you say to them as you're teaching them, they copy what you see, what they see, and they also conclude that there is no power in the Christianity you profess. The godly man is a man of honor. He has learned from the close study of the scriptures that honor is important to God. Therefore, he endeavors to understand the meaning and the value of honor and to practice what it means to honor God and to honor all men. Honor means high respect, esteem. Honor is important to God. God values the act of showing honor. As we are to told in the book Education, page 244, he is pleased when we show reverence, respect, and high regard to those he has placed in positions of authority and responsibility over us, such as parents or ministers, teachers. This includes showing high regard 
and respect not only based on the merit of the person honored, but based on his rank or position that he occupies in the eyes of God. God wants us to honor him and honor all men. He has modeled honor for us himself in his honoring behavior toward man. Psalm 8, 4-6 says, um, I won't read it yet, God has shown um, incredibly high regard for us, his creatures. He has honored us. Undeserving though we are, he shows us a tremendous amount of favor and grace and grace that is absolutely mind-boggling. And when his love and grace awaken love for him and faith in us, it will result in the surrender of our lives to him and of our will to his holy will. Our love and faith will be evident in our desire to show a growing love for him, utmost respect and reverence for his word and obedience to his revealed will. The godly man learns to love God because why? Love awakens love. As we know God, as we get greater glimpses of his love, love is awakened in our hearts. And then we are inspired to become like him, to become honoring and honorable. The godly man becomes, strives to become an honorable man because honor breeds honor. Among the many biblical admonitions that call for honoring others is the command to honor our fathers and mothers. God values honoring parents so much that the commandment <clears throat> appears in the Decalogue as the only commandment with a promise that thy, thy days shall be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Long life is one of the most coveted gifts by human beings. And in promising that reward for obedience, God was saying to man, this is important to me. Honor is important to me. God then regards this honor to parents as an act of dishonor to himself. So, the value he places on honor is evident both in the unique promise in the Decalogue and in the strong language in scripture that is used to symbolize the severity of the consequences suffered by those that choose to disobey and honor parents. Have you, have you read Proverbs 30, 17? It says, The eye that mocketh at his father and disputes to obey his mother, the ravens of the valley shall pick it out, and the young eagles shall eat it. Another one, Proverbs 20, 20, Whoso curseth his father or his mother, his lamp shall be put out in obscure darkness. Certainly strong arguments intended to highly discourage the dishonoring of parents. Is this something that we outgrow? Is it only important to honor your parents when you are young? No. Being parents that have raised four young people, two of them being godly young men today by God's grace, we understand today more than ever how crucial, from God's perspective, obedience to this commandment, honor your father and your mother, is. How crucial it is in the shaping of a godly life. And in a special way, as we're talking about today, a godly man. Just as honor and honoring is part of the very fabric of the, the character of God, no boy will be judged as a godly boy 
or man in the highest sense of the word without learning to honor. When as a mere lad, a boy learns to honor his parents and reverence those in authority over him, he is well on his way to becoming a man of honor, a man after God's own heart. There's a um, true life example of God's displeasure with dishonor that is found uh, in Second Kings 2, 23 and 24. This is not the case of honoring parents, but honoring others that God has placed in, in positions of authority. This is the incident, I'm not going to take time to read it, but this is the incident of the mauling by two female bears of the 42 disrespectful youth who mocked Elisha the prophet, calling him bald head. There are many additional examples of admonitions or promises or illustrations of the value of honor in the scripture. It deserves a study. Um, I won't, I will just go through these um, but will not even stop to talk about them because we're short on time. God laments the dishonor of those that honor him only with lip service. Isaiah 29, 13 says, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near to me, sorry, and with their lips do honor me, but they have removed their heart from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. As we closely study the scriptures, we see that the heart of God um, has honored his children, bestowing on us marvelous gifts of grace. God longs to be honored. And he is a God that wants his children to show honor to each other. So as we bring this down to the topic of the day, um, attributes of a godly man, and the disciplines that build such a character, we cannot but be persuaded that the man of God must become a man of honor, a man who is bound by his sense of honor, who has learned to honor all men, and in a special way honor those to whom special honor is due. So take it home. How does a child learn the value of honor, or, or what honor means? Especially as we realize that we live in an age of disrespect. Would you agree with that? Second Timothy 3, 1 and 2 says this. Know also that in the last days perilous times will come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers. Disobedient to parents. Unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. Truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. Role models for children and youth that are honoring are scarce. Therefore, friends, it is not possible to just look around us and teach, define honor for a child by what we look at and what we see. Children, and especially youth in this day and age, largely fail to show honor. And even among grown adults, um, there are so many who scarcely know its meaning. We need to turn to the Word. Search the Scriptures. The godly man, the godly boy, is not shaped by the cultural climate 
that is that we are living in, but by uh, allowing the Word to shape His life and character. We turn to the Word, and it is there that we learn. We see honor exemplified. We teach our sons from the biblical examples what it means to honor. We teach according to the principles laid out in, in uh, Deuteronomy uh, 6, 6 and 7, which I, I won't go into for lack of time, but basically we teach as we are sitting in our home, as we walk by the way, when we lie down, when we rise up. We find teachable moments to teach lessons from the Word of God. We take our worship time in the evening to discuss those, the things that matter, the, the failures uh, that we've experienced, the power of God, the grace that is available. We see honor in the Bible defined in the lives of people such as Isaac and in the respect and trust and the reverence and willing submission to the godly authority of his father Abraham under the most trying of circumstances in Genesis 22, um, 1 to 14 is the story of how as a boy he was bound to an altar becoming a willing sacrifice. And again, we see it exemplified in his life at the year, at, at the age of 40, as he listens to his father's admonitions regarding the, the only safe choice at that point of a wife for him. He believed that honoring his father and benefiting from his wisdom was not something that he outgrew, that he outgrew at the age of 18 or 20 or 25. We need to ponder how honor was displayed in the lives of Noah's children. Imperfect though they were, they honored their father as boys and then as growing grown men, joining him in his endeavor of building the ark subject to ridicule for 40 years and eventually entering the ark with their own families. What was the reward of, it, of his obedience? His own life. Each of those men, each of those children, their own lives was their reward for, for their honor of their father. We see honor exemplified in the life of Ruth toward Naomi. In the Rechabites, toward their father, Jonadab. That's a, it's a great story. I'm not going to take time for it. Read it in Jeremiah 35 and read what God says with longing to the children of Israel. Oh, that you would obey me, that you would honor me the way that the children of Jonadab honored their father. One more glimpse of honor, Elisha. Elisha showed honor to the prophet Elijah through his willingness to forsake his home and family to become a humble servant to minister to the needs of the prophet. The, I, I won't go into more of that. All of these stories that we've made reference to or these scriptures that we have read, they all display a higher, much higher standard of honor, one that is foreign to our modern culture. So how do we take it home? Friends, we can create a holy culture right within our homes. As men and women of God, we need to raise the standard of honor in our own lives. What are we doing to honor our own parents as grown people, as aging people? Raise the standard of honor by being intentional in teaching our children to honor in various ways. 
And the first we've made reference to, to live pious lives that exemplify the priority of honoring God. Ephesians 6 says, And ye fathers provoke not your children to wrath. Our children actually get provoked. When we are trying to teach them one thing and doing another, let us not provoke our children to wrath. Let's teach them those lessons in Deuteronomy 6, um, 6 and 7 fashion, teaching them diligently when we sit in our homes and just as we walk by the way and everywhere. We need to um, define for the children what honor means. Because like I said, they won't see it easily outside of our home. Articulate clearly what you mean when you are teaching him to become an honorable boy. Articulate clearly what you consider to be honoring or, or respectful behavior versus disrespectful. Clearly communicate those expectations and follow through with the needed correction or affirmation and encouragement. Lavish children with praise and affection when they display or initiate honoring behaviors toward you and their siblings. If you just approach this in a, in a corrective way only, it'll just create a negative um, atmosphere in the home. So give them affection and give them affirmation. Teach them courtesy. I don't know how much time parents in this day and age spend teaching their children courteous behaviors, but I suspect it is not very much. Teach them courtesy. Use incentives, especially when, when teaching younger children. Inculcate the thought that honor is a beautiful value. God loves honor. It is a loving thing to do. Friends, and then pray diligently for your children. As you're teaching them these lessons, as you're choosing to exemplify them, pray for them. When these lessons of honor are indelibly etched into a child's heart, they become a safeguard to him. Because for the sake of honor, they will be willing to sacrifice. As God-fearing parents, we will then have a, a, a greater influence on our sons and daughters than the many influences in our culture that distance them from us and that destroy their spirituality. Let me tell you a little personal experience here. There was a time recently when one of our grown sons was not persuaded that what we were actually earnestly as parents appealing for him to do was really what was best for him. It certainly was not what he wanted to do. And we admit, we were asking him to do a very hard thing. And we don't do that lightly. We, um, they are all walking with Christ by God's grace. So it is not often that we have to stand before them and make some serious appeals. We praise God for their walk with the Lord. They are absolutely determined to honor and serve God. And it was only because his heart is bound, the, the heart of this young man, this son, is bound by a deep sense of honor that this son chose to listen to our entreaties and to heed our counsel, even though it crossed every inclination he had at the time. And he was not personally convinced. That's right. He was not personally convinced. And he knows that we are not perfect. So he could very well say to himself, you know, mom and dad are, are not right. They're not seeing this clearly. But he chose because of his um, because he has embraced the value of honor wholeheartedly, he could not go forward knowing 
that we were pleading with him not to go forward. It was months later that he was actually convinced, persuaded beyond any shadow of doubt, that the choice made, the choice he made was indeed God's choice for him, even though he couldn't see it at the time. His sense of honor and his willingness to sacrifice for the sake of honoring God, first and foremost, and honoring his parents was a safeguard to him as a grown man in his 20s. His commitment to submit to the discipline of accountability has blessed his life beyond measure. He has come to us time and time again in the months that followed and said, thank you. Thank you for standing firm. Thank you for not being afraid to cross my will at this stage of my life. Now, I want to make a disclaimer here. Our sons understand the frailty of man, and they know that their parents are not perfect. They know that we are capable of misinterpreting uh, the leadings of God. They are committed to obey God rather than man and are boundly determined to keep their covenant with God even when the man that they must disobey happens to be a parent. I say this as a clarification and a warning for parents who might hear what we're saying and begin to abuse their privileges, requiring or expecting from their young people that which is actually not in harmony with the will of God. There are parents that we know currently that in the name of honor are asking their children to do things that are actually motivated by the parents' own selfish desires. It is a fearful thing to stand in the place of God as we seek to offer counsel and guidance to our adult children. And we had better tarry long on our faces before God if we are going to make a very serious request of an adult son that we know is bound by his sense of honor and will probably, therefore, give up whatever it is you're giving him to give up. It is not sinful for that adult child to say no if he knows that what you are asking is presumptuous or, or it breaks principle. A son, though, must only do this, say no, without dishonoring, even as an adult, a parent, if he himself has sought a multitude of counselors before coming to the conclusion that his parents are just wrong and misguided. Even then, when a son can actually come to the point of realizing that his parents are misguided, he should feel duty-bound to honor. We never lose that duty to honor that misguided parent by dealing with him tenderly, respectfully, and with utmost kindness, even if, as he chooses to follow the course that he believes God is putting before his feet. Well, let's see what we can cover in the next 10 minutes. That's how much time we have left. We knew that we would have difficulty because we wanted to cover a lot of material for you today. Second Peter 1, 5 through 8, speaks about giving all diligence and we know about this text and uh, adding self-control and the self-control perseverance. These are the qualities that are needed by every Christian, certainly. Diligence comes from the Greek word spude, I may not pronounce it correctly, which really means earnestness in accomplishing and striving after something. And perseverance is from the Greek word hypomone, which in the New Testament is characteristic of a man who is not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty and faith and piety. So we see that diligence and perseverance is needed amongst other virtues for fruitful growth in faith. 
So the practical application I'd like to give for this is an illustration that I read one day from the book Daily Bread. This was about George Mueller, who began praying for five of his friends that they would come to love the Lord Jesus Christ. After many months, one of them accepted Jesus as his personal Savior. Ten years later, two others were converted. It took 25 years of prayer before the fourth man accepted Jesus Christ in his life, and Mueller persevered in prayer until his death for the fifth friend. And throughout those 52 years, he never gave up hoping that he would accept Christ. His faith was rewarded, for soon after Mueller's death, the last one accepted Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. So here's my question. Do we persist? Do we persist in prayer for our children? Do we persist in prayer for those that we care about? Do we persist in praying for our extended family, for our friends, our opportunities to reach others for the kingdom of heaven? Galatians 6, 9 says it well. Don't let, let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. While we were speaking in England on a ministry trip a couple of years ago, we had the privilege of visiting Westminster Abbey. I had read about William Wilberforce, who championed the end of the slave trade in England. I read this also in the devotional book Daily Bread. William was discouraged one night in the early 1790s after another defeat in his 20-year battle to end slavery in England. Tired and frustrated, he opened up his Bible and began to leave through it, and a small piece of paper fell out and floated to the floor. It was a little letter written to him by the preacher John Wesley, shortly before his death. Wilberforce read it again. And this is what it said. Unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through this glorious enterprise in opposing that abominable practice of slavery, which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? All of them together? Are they stronger than God? Oh, be not weary in well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might. So because of this, Wilberforce persevered. And he headed the parliamentary campaign against the British slave trade for 20 years until the passage of the Slave Trade Act, which ended it in 1807 in England. But then he continued in his perseverance and when he resigned from Parliament because of his failing health in 1826, that campaign of his led to the Abolition, the Slavery Abolish, Abolition Act of 1833, which abolished slavery throughout the entire British Empire. He died three days after hearing that the passage of the Act through Parliament was assured. Brothers and sisters, we need to persevere. We need to persevere in providing for our family. 1 Titus 5.8 says, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. We have to persevere in what God would have us to do. Colossians 3.23, And whatever you do, do it heartily, as unto the Lord and not unto men, knowing that it is of the Lord that you shall receive the reward of the inheritance. We need to persevere to keep our heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. And we need to be, like in Hebrews 6.11, that we desire that every one of us show the same diligence to the full assurance of the hope until the end. 
as we take that home as parents, we need to model perseverance in our own homes as we engage in activities that are not our favorite. And then we need to teach our children, both by priest value of perseverance. We need to teach them to, to, to the very end, to do the task or the chore as faithfully as when they started sweeping the kitchen floor. Self-sacrifice. Behold the man. The man who is um, the greatest example of self-sacrifice. The, the, the man, the godly man, embraces self-sacrifice. As we look at the life of Christ, who was the perfect pattern for every man, we encounter truly the most perfect example of self-sacrificing love for others in the history of mankind. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians laments that all seek their own, not the things that are Christ's. In contrast, as we look at the description of the mind of Christ that starts um, in Philippians 2, I think there's a mistake there, <clears throat> verses 5, we see a different picture. In verse 3, he makes an appeal that sets the foundation for the experience of entering into that self-sacrificing love of Christ that he is, that the apostle is wanting us all to partake of. Let nothing be done through strife and vainglory. Um, I'll skip some. Look not every man on his own things, but every man. Basically, other-focused. Don't be self-oriented, self-focused, proud and selfish. Look on the things of others. This was the way of Christ, the perfect pattern. For every man, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, he became obedient unto death is the final. The critical question is what motivates a man to exercise that level of sacrifice and heroism that we see in Christ. Hebrews 12, to shed some light, uh, it talks about looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. So he had a motivation for all of his self-sacrificing, and it was the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? The thought of our redemption. Amazing love. Friends, love is the purest and most enduring motivation for godliness. Love is the foundational principle of God's character and his kingdom. It was the fullness of the love of God lavishly displayed in the life of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ that inspires the greatest joy in the Father's heart. We see the son commending the father, the, the father commending the son with Philippians 2 9. Wherefore God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. How beautiful, how amazing what we are describing as heroism. It's not in us, it's all motivated by love exercising the greatest self-denial and untiring labor for the benefit and the blessing of others. You know, Job 29 is a sort of Proverbs 31 
for a woman, Job 29 is for a man. In, in the first verses, Job is reminiscing about his past. I'm not going to take time to read them. Uh, verses 4 through 11, he describes the admiration and the, and the respect. He's, he's actually reminiscing about the days before all the, all the calamities came upon him. Um, but here's where it starts. Be uh, respected by all. Uh, because I delivered the poor that cried and the fatherless and him that had none to help him. The it put on righteousness and it clothed me. My judgment was as a robe and a diadem. I was eyes. And the cause which I knew not, I searched out. And I break the jaws of the wicked and pluck the spoil out of his teeth. The godly man is a self-sacrificing caretaker. He has to be motivated by the love of God. So the love of God, the immense love of God, has to take possessions. Possession of the soul of the godly man and the godly woman. This is, a, this is the standard. How as humans do we achieve it? How do we take it home? Love is the fruit of the Spirit. By beholding, we are changed. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. We need the indwelling of the Spirit. Love grows. And one day, we get to the point where we are so in, in being the hands of God to minister to others. The feet lost. That um, needs to be part of the, the, the learning process every day in the Word, being captivated by the love of God. And in, in doing, in learning to practice self-sacrifice, self-discipline is a sacrifice. And it is through self-discipline that we gain many of these traits as we dedicate ourselves to prayer and to actually changing our behaviors from day to day. By the grace of God. Well, we'll end on the one text that we think that matters in the area of moral purity since our time is completely up. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. There is much that we can say in this age where we know that purity is very, very difficult in our modern society, but this is an area where we appeal to men, particularly to pay close attention, not only in their own lives personally, but how they help their sons to have pure thoughts in this day and age so that we can help them to be able to reflect Christ in all that they do and all that they say. Let's bow our heads as we close. Father in heaven, we just ask that you would help us to understand and to put into practice principles that are found in your word that will be instrumental in helping us not only in our own lives as men, but in the lives of our young men and those with whom we have the privilege of mentoring or teaching, that they may all grow to be the kind of man that you would have us to be, and that in so doing we can lead our families to the kingdom of heaven and indeed hear those words one day, well done, good and faithful servant. As we present ourselves and our flock that you have given to us in Jesus precious name amen
thank you so much. Our uh, everything that you have missed, the slides for this last point will be on our website, pathwayofpromise.org. If you want to um, just get the whole thing, get all those scriptures, make it a matter of study. Uh, it won't not it will not happen for another two weeks because we're going overseas right from here. But when we return, we will be putting it on pathwayofpromise.org. God bless you. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.